Hey, hey, it's the Productize Podcast. Whoa, episode 50. How about that? Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brian Castle. You're going to hear my conversation today with Patrick Campbell. He's the founder of ProfitWell and Price Intelligently, which are basically the same company, but they do a couple of different things, all squarely focused on pricing. And he basically helps companies price intelligently, if you will. (laughs) Um, But they mix services with software products and tech-enabled services, as he put it, which I I think is great. So we just talked through Patrick's story of of really starting out with the service side of the business, doing that really, really profitably, but then leveraging that to then fund the launch of his freemium SaaS product, uh, ProfitWell, with some premium add-ons layered on top of that. So really interesting conversation. And then, of course, I couldn't let Patrick go without picking his brain about pricing strategy and how to figure out how to price your services or your software products and where to kind of focus your attention in those areas. Uh, We also talked a bit about his content strategy. They've been doing a lot of with uh, video in the last year or two, which is really exciting, uh, taking a, a pretty new approach to that. So that was another interesting part of this conversation. So let's get right into it. Here is my conversation with Patrick Campbell from Price Intelligently and ProfitWell. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Patrick Campbell from Price Intelligently and ProfitWell. Um, I guess they're kind of the same company. We're going to get the story on, on all that. Patrick, if you guys don't know him, is kind of an expert on all things pricing and building a pretty impressive company these past few years. But you know, I'm probably not doing it justice. So Patrick, welcome. And uh, how do you kind of introduce ProfitWell and Price Intelligently today? Yeah, that's a great question. And I was just going to punt and say you did a good job and move on. But uh, so we are the the working title, which we're not huge fans of right now, um, is you know, we help subscription companies grow. So we're a platform for helping subscription companies grow through like high leverage areas in their business. Um, We don't really like that because that's what every site says. Um, And so uh, it it helps to kind of explain the products real quickly. So we have a free product, um, it's called ProfitWell that provides free subscription financial metrics. You plug in your billing system, takes two minutes, and then you get access to your MRR, your churn, all types of different stuff. And then from there, the way we make money is we sell a number of different products that help you with your growth. So Price Intelligently, it's a tech-enabled service, which basically means you can't buy us without our software, you can't buy our software without us, uh, and we help people with their subscription or recurring revenue pricing. And then we have Retain, which is a churn reduction product that helps people reduce their churn automatically. And then we have a product called Recognize, which is a you know an accounting product that basically helps you do your revenue recognition if you're a subscription company. So that's kind of the, the working explanation, but frankly, we're changing our name to ProfitWell overall. So PriceIntelligy.com will still exist, but it'll be by ProfitWell. And um, so we're, we're now going through that product marketing research of trying to figure out, you know, how do we have a theme across all these different things that can be summed up in a sentence? Because if you give me clearly a couple paragraphs, I can explain it. But yeah. So yeah, I heard the other day that you're kind of doing that swap from, I guess, ProfitWell is becoming the primary brand name, but you guys actually started out as Price Intelligently first, and now it's kind of your, your swap in that. So I, I definitely want to hear about that. But you know, just to frame it up as we get into it here, you know, we're going to talk about your story. I think it's really interesting how you've kind of done, like you said, the tech-enabled service. I really like that. You know, very much kind of like a productized service powered with software. I, I just love that model. And then, of course, you've then kind of got into the SaaS product or products with ProfitWell. Um, we're going to talk about that. You've done a lot of really interesting things with content the past few years, especially with video. I want to hear some of your thinking on that. And then, of course, I, I really want to pick your brain when it comes to pricing and just some questions about how should we approach it? How should we fix certain pricing problems and things like that? So yeah, you know, let's, let's just talk about your story a bit. You know, before we go back... Uh, here we are, we're right at the beginning of 2018. Like, can you give us a sense of what the company looks like today, you know, in terms of size, whether it's revenue or team or, you know, however you, you care to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we are 42 people. We have an office in Rosario, Argentina, that is six of those folks. And we, uh, from a revenue perspective, our exit velocity out of 2017 was 10 million um, in recurring revenue. And we've been around for about six years. And I'm trying to think of any other fun back of the baseball card facts. Uh, we're oh, we're fully bootstrapped. That's something I was just going to ask. I I wasn't sure. I knew you were bootstrapped for a while, so you're still 
Yeah, haven't raised. I mean, unless you count me cashing in my 401k uh, to start the company, but that was, you know, that's not institutional money and it was not a lot of money. So uh, yeah, that was the, that was kind of six months of personal runway living really, you know, ramen and lean and then got enough revenue to kind of take things off the ground. But yeah, we, we started off as, as you mentioned in this kind of a, actually a lot of people don't realize we started off as a pure software product. So we wrote these um, algorithms because my background's in econometrics and math. And, and basically, I was given at a startup. So I, I worked in the US Intel community and I worked at Google and I was doing econ modeling there. And I worked for a startup after that and I was given pricing as a problem. So I was writing some algorithms to help with pricing and started realizing that you know this was a huge issue. And I partnered up with a couple of folks. And originally, the product was you know pure software. It was like a survey tool that you could plug in basically these inputs from your customers or your target customers and get price elasticity curves and, and different value. And we found that people, they didn't want to do the work. And this is the problem with most products that we see is they require the user to do a lot of work. And if they're not priced right, and they require a lot of work, you're dead. And the other thing that we found, which is kind of unique to our space, the pricing space at the time, is that a lot of people didn't have the confidence nor the knowledge to act on the data. And so we quickly actually had people just ask us like, hey, can you just do this and then tell me what to do? And we were like, okay, that's going to cost you more. And they're like, yeah, it's fine. And so that's kind of how we started just kind of launching into this tech-enabled service. And um, the reason we call it a tech-enabled service is because one, everyone's like, oh, you're consulting, you're consulting, you're consulting. And it's like, no, like we don't do any custom stuff. So we used to for a bit, but you can't come to us and say, hey, McKinsey's selling me this. Can you do the same thing? Uh, sometimes we can and sometimes we do, but most of the time it's you know a very templated, very focused kind of process that we use that you have to buy into as a customer essentially. So that's like the, the earliest uh, origin story there. Well, yeah. So just like on the timeline there, when was that when you kind of made that transition from working at the startup, working for the US Intel into basically going out on your own and starting this company? Yeah, so I was with the US intelligence community in 2010, right around then. I was there for about a year. And then, uh, so that was that was kind of the end of 2010. So I was still in school. And then I graduated from college, went to Google for a year and a half. So you're just at college and like on the side, you're just working for the US intelligence community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. So I was in a program for, um, and, and this sounds so much better. This sounds so sexier than it actually is, but like I can't go too deep into it. And it's not because I was a super secret spy or anything like that, but just because you, you have to be careful with some of the things that you say. Um, but I was in this program the summer of my, uh, right before my senior year, and it basically was doing work throughout. Uh, and then graduated and went to Google because the government, I loved, I love my job, but it was when it was very fulfilling, but you're working for the government, which is extremely bureaucratic. And one theme in my career so far is I've always tried to have the least bureaucracy possible. And that's why Google, which was great. It's like Disneyland for adults, but there's still a lot of bureaucracy, especially if you're not an engineer, which I'm not an engineer. So then you got into basically running like pricing models for was it for Google and then for another startup or yeah it was so at Google I was I was in like a sales sales operations role so I was building models for the stat nerds out there the data science nerds I was building kind of models that would solve like the traveling salesman problem um, which allowed you know basically basically lead prioritization models and I didn't work on pricing there but I wanted to kind of get out of the bureaucracy because there was this thing where I made Google a lot of money and I got this award and you know, a check for five grand, but I had made Google so much more than that. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to bust my ass, like I might as well, you know, go and, uh, you know, go and do it myself. Own the thing. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I worked, I, I got lucky because, you know, just being a punk kid, I thought I could do it on my own, but I happened to meet another entrepreneur who was heavily venture backed and had a company called Jamvara, which is a, a customized jewelry startup. So they did kind of like what Blue Nile did, but for gemstones. So the average contract for, or the average sale was about $1,000 and, you know, the jewelry space is crazy. But basically, it was kind of like a strategic initiatives guy. So I came in, I was a pretty cheap employee, um, wasn't a, you know, a manager or anything like that. But I would do um, 
you know, product management. So I'd help design the OMS for the customer service reps to use. I would, you know, help the customer service reps get ready for the holidays by having the right resources, some of which were just spreadsheets. And then I was kind of handed pricing where they were like, hey, you can go figure this out or at least somewhat figure it out. You're relatively cheap. They didn't say this to me, but this is kind of the thinking postdoc where, you know, if you fail, not a big deal, but if you succeed, there's good upside. And that's when I started touching pricing data and started realizing small changes in, you know, your price can create giant holes in your revenue or just giant spikes in your revenue. And that was kind of the moment mixed with wasn't like a big fan of the culture. Uh, It wasn't that it was, you know, bureaucratic. It just was one of those things where I think as you grow up in you know, your early and mid twenties, you start to realize what you actually want, what you don't want. Some people realize much earlier, but that's kind of when I was like, I don't really want to work for a company that does this, or I don't really like want a culture like this. And then they weren't like bad or good things. It just was preferences. And so, yeah, I I just think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of founders who just become, especially early on in their career, they just become less and less employable. And like, even the places that they work at are great. I I used to work at some pretty cool companies, but at a certain point, it's just like, I, I don't know, I can't help it. Can't work here. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just one of those things where it's I don't know. I think you you start to learn how to do. Like you start to learn how to even if it's pure consulting, right? You start to learn how to do and how to function yourself and and kind of, you know, I hate this phrase. Oh, I don't hate this phrase, but I think it's kind of cliché like you eat what you kill, right? You learn that like that skill. And I think what ends up happening is it's maybe less that you change and it's more that any quote-unquote job or corporate scenario just doesn't seem appealing. I don't know. I think it's one of those things though, which is kind of cool that the reason I jumped out on my own and I come from a very blue collar family. My parents thought I was crazy for leaving the government, let alone leaving Google. And it was one of those things where I kind of, I started to wrestle with, Hey, I at least can find a job. I can always find a job. I can always go be a barista. I can always go, you know, do telemarketing. I can go, I can find a job to like survive. You know, why don't I take a chance when I don't have kids? I don't have a partner, those types of things in order to, to find something I love. Absolutely. So, you know, I actually know a lot of people who, who are in like a somewhat similar situation to where you're at, like, especially being a very technical yeah, I know just I'm thinking of a few guys who are like technical analysts at companies or they kind of do that as a consulting gig, but they're just looking for ways to turn that into an actual company. I mean, you were able to make that leap from running these like pricing and analysis models for a company that you were working for into launching basically what became Price Intelligently. Like what were your next steps? What was your vision as you were like just becoming self-employed and partnering up and then, you know, getting that new thing off the ground? I think I think what's interesting about that time is people either romanticize the next step too much. So for me, I I just started getting into like, oh my gosh, if I don't make any money, I can't pay myself and my savings are basically being depleted and you know, I'm not going to be able to survive, right? And I had a very probably non-chill perspective on that. And I think that what happens is too many people, and I see this all the time, you know, people who are good entrepreneurs, but they get caught up in, well, I don't want to do that thing because that's a service type thing and a VC isn't going to like that. So I'm going to try to wait and figure out the other thing. When in reality, literally the best customer development, and this is not the first time this has been said, is someone paying you to do something, even though it might not be what the product ever becomes. And that's kind of how we did it in the beginning where, I mean, our first customer was, you know, it was Litmus and they paid us less than $2,000. I think I can say that. I think Paul would be okay with that. And now, you know, we're charging people, you know, 20 grand a month. And it's, it's one of those things where we were okay kind of, you know, taking and letting the market or letting these people lead us and then making strategic decisions in the early days to, to not uh, romanticize what this could be, but just kind of letting the product and the customer kind of guide us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is basically what I, what I talk about all the time. It's like, let that service basically be the bridge into what's next, or just position you into a place where you can actually start to expand and grow a product line and, and just plant a flag in a market and all that. But you have to really learn, you have to take the time and, and really learn who those customers are and actually sell something to them, whether it's services or, or something. Yeah, we're not, we're, we get too bougie as the, the young kids would say. Yep. <laughs> uh, so what were like those early days of price intelligently? Like I'm curious, because I mean, if you look at it today, obviously it looks super strategic looking back, right? Like how price intelligently then evolved into this, like then profit well and, and all these other services like kind of pieced together and it's all, you know, related to pricing and optimization and all that. But like, what was your vision early on as you started to do 
kind of that tech enabled service as you call it? Yeah. So early on we, so it was just me. I was the only person working on this full time. And so it was, you know, the classic 18 hour days, six days a week, seven days a week, really, you know, cranking. And I think that what kept us going, and this is, this is another kind of pitfall when you're trying to productize things is we always knew we were going to get back closer and closer to product. We always knew that. We always had our vision that you know people would say, "Why don't you just create a really nice, you know, consulting business?" And we always cringe when they said the word consulting because we're like, "We're not consulting. You know, we're a tech-enabled service," which no one else understands. So it's like one of those things where you know it was hard early on to like have that mindset. But I think that's what really helped us was we didn't know what the product was going to be. We knew there was something to crack in this space because we were at least strategic about, "Hey, this is a problem." that no one knows anything about and actually has pretty high impact on your business. And so that kind of kept the faith and it also kept us lean because rather than me building the business for 18 months and getting it to a point where I can pay myself a really, really nice salary and then also pay someone else a nice salary, we found Peter who you know, was a was hired as a salesperson essentially. Now he's our GM of the Price Intelligently product. And he had much of his comp be variable. And I went from making zero dollars a year to making thirty thousand dollars a year, which certainly was not enough to live in Boston, but slowed my burn a little bit. And so that's kind of how the early days were where we were I was very much in a very blessed position where I had some savings. I didn't have to support a family and I could, you know, use this blue collar mindset that I kind of grew up with to just grind and grind and grind and then found like-minded people that, you know, were allowing us to to kind of scale early and try to find the way to get to that product. Very cool. Okay, so as we go on in the timeline here, like when did Profitwell kind of come about and what was your initial kind of strategy there when, when that idea came up to start? Yeah, so Profitwell came about because we So the original idea we had, which is something that we're still considering kind of working on was uh, we wanted to... So the problem with pricing is that it's very individualized to a particular company. There's some major trends that happen, you know, across different types of companies and different types of ARPU or, or different, you know, I'm talking about subscriptions specifically. But overall, there's a very individualized problem. Average revenue per user for those of you following along at home. <laughs> Too far into the weeds. But <laughs> so the long story short, it, it's one of those things where it's not like I can you know, if we were going to build something, we would have built a workflow product, right? Which is like, oh, go through these steps to figure out your pricing. And those are terrible products. And so, um, and we have a competitor who kind of went under because they were trying to build that. It wasn't a bad idea. It's just no one wants to use that type of product. And so we wanted to find something that could do it for them. And so we started thinking, hey, what if we hosted every pricing page in the world? You know, what would that look like? And then that had, that had a lot of problems with that idea. And we were helping a company that was about to go public with their pricing. And we discovered that they were calculating their MRR, or their monthly recurring revenue, completely incorrectly. And to give you some context, that's kind of like uh, looking into your bank account and getting the number wrong. It needs to be known. And this was a CFO taking two other companies public and you know his team was wrong. And so what we ended up doing is we're like, oh, this is the idea. This is the in because the pricing page idea wasn't going to work as well as getting us the data we needed to produce the algorithms and produce the product that was going to help someone with pricing. And uh, we originally were thinking, oh, we could sell this product and kind of you know, make money as well as you know, kind of scale it. But what shortly happened is you know, we had literally within a six-week period, Bear Metrics, which is another company in the space, launched. Um, they launched first. We were in beta technically, but they were loud first. And that was like, oh crap, we're not geniuses. There's other people who think this is a good idea. Then we launched and was kind of like a low, not really that lack, it was a lackluster launch. And then Chart Mogul had their beta page up, but they also launched within basically that six week period and that caused us to basically go back to the drawing board and, and to make a really long story short. Uh, you know, I just really didn't realize that all three of those products were so close to each other in their launch times. Yeah, it was pretty weird because. There were 36 different products within the first year that all launched and at least on their landing pages claimed to provide subscription financial metrics that plugged right into Stripe. A lot of them didn't do some of the other billing systems like some of the others did. But yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it seemed like a deceptively easy problem. And in reality, creating that product as Josh at Bear Metrics and Nick at Tarmogul and, and we here at ProfitWell have found, it's actually a much, much harder problem to solve than you know, simply hooking up some data and showing some graphs. 
Yeah. I mean, I can imagine. And, and there are so many little like technical things in Stripe, like different companies kind of use their subscription features differently and their trial features. So like the way that it calculates, it can be kind of, kind of tricky, I'm sure. Yeah. We're up to, for our Stripe algorithms and, and kind of classifier base, we are up to, I think it's over a thousand different edge cases that we're accounting for. Wow. And I mean, that includes like basics, like, hey, how do you handle an, you know, an annual plan all the way to, oh, this weird time zone switches every quarter like from one time zone to the other, oh, so like doing stuff like that. And so, and then, you know, there's countless others for all of our other integrations. Setup fees and all that fun stuff. Yeah, totally. Like how do you, and then, and then there's, I mean, there's definitely things that are opinion based. And so that's something too, like tuberify to toggle, or do you just say, nope, this is how you're supposed to do this. Um, yeah, it's something that's kind of interesting. So when you launched ProfitWell, was it, I know that today it's free. It's kind of like the freemium model, if you will. Was that the plan from day one? So no, the, the plan was to actually charge for it. And what we found though is that was a terrible idea. And so the way that we found that is we applied our pricing. So when Barometrics, they got really loud and they got a lot of hacker news, like I call it the hacker news crowd, like, you know, the lifestyle businesses, you know, the folks who, you know, and I read hacker news every day, but it's it's that kind of group really embraced them. And then Chart Mogul launched and they were more heavily venture backed. And so it's one of those things where we're like, well, great. Like now all of a sudden we went from thinking we were the only ones in the market or going to be the only ones to having these competitors as well as a bunch of their BI tools that support this idea. And so we went back to the drawing board and the long story short is we did the pricing research and discovered that for the space that we're in, and a lot of people don't realize that the subscription space is only 50,000 logos max. There's not a ton of companies out there but willingness to pay for a BI product, and this is historically a really big problem for analytics products, is, is actually really low. So the ARPA or the average revenue per user that we were going to expect was kind of like low three figures, like $100 to $200. And it was going to skew very, very low with a lot of like $50 a month, $100 a month people. And uh, there wasn't really a lot of expansion revenue opportunity when we did the research. And so we were like, okay, we either need to kill this or we need to you know, give it away for free. And we still wanted the data to help us build other cool products like retain and improve the pricing side. And so it was one of those things where we moved into basically saying, all right, we're going to give this away for free. And what was kind of cool is that within 18 months, Chart Mogul created a free plan and, you know, to kind of combat us, at least we haven't confirmed that, but it seems like it. Um, Bear Metrics had tried a free plan, but the infrastructure from you know, he wrote a blog post, the CEO of Barometrics on basically, you know, how the free plan didn't, it was, it sounded like it was on the infrastructure costs, like really skyrocketed. But what's kind of cool is because we decided to go free from the beginning, we knew we needed to have those infrastructure things taken care of. We knew we needed to basically make this a free model. And so it, it helped us kind of hone and, and sharpen our craft in order to kind of scale essentially. You know, I'm always interested in like, how companies make this a viable business, you know, like you said, from you've been bootstrapped since the very beginning, like throughout this whole period where you're launching ProfitWell, a free product, are you basically funding the runway from that, basically from the like the revenue profit from Price Intelligently? Yep, exactly. So the thing that a lot of like service businesses or tech-enabled services or even consultant businesses don't get right is their pricing, ironically, and so or coincidentally, I should say. And what ends up happening is their margins are very, very low. So basically, you get to the end of the year and it's like, oh, we have you know 10% profit or 50% profit. And you know that just goes into the, the founder's coffers, essentially, or in the business's coffers. And so what we started to do was basically say, okay, we're going to hire you know, people. We're going to build an engineering team. The price intelligent product was a lot less engineering needy because it was more of this tech-enabled service. And so uh, and there was still engineering need over there and there's a lot more now, but it was one of those things where we could take that profit and basically dump it into essentially R&D at this point. And that's where I was kind of commenting before, like having the discipline when you're starting one of these businesses to not necessarily make 30 grand forever. I certainly, I'm not making 30 grand now, but having the discipline to you know invest back in the company rather than taking that easy money off the table is really important. Yeah. Okay. So you launch ProfitWell. Like what happens between the launch of that? What has it been like two or three years now since that initially came out? I guess longer than that. So it's been, I think it's, no, it's actually only been, I believe three years. 
I need to check, but it's everyone asked that, and I don't, I can't remember because we've just been obviously cranking. But yeah, it's been a few years that since we initially launched the product. Um, yeah, it's been I think these three years. It sounds like so from the time that actually came out to the public to your first paid add-on, you know, not price intelligently, but I guess retained and recognized. Um, like when did those kind of come about, and when were you sure like that's kind of like the revenue side of this? Yeah. So we, we bumped around a little bit with the free product because this is when we were figuring out, okay, this needs to be free. Are we going to kill it? Or are we going to give it away for free? So we, we bumped around a little bit and then we ended up kind of discovering that like we weren't sure what space to go in from a monetization standpoint. But we had some early data that showed, you know, if you could reduce someone's churn, you had a really good pricing model there because you could theoretically charge based on how much you recovered. And, you know, there's a bunch of different things that we could do to basically make sure that we were going into a very, very good market. Because we knew based on the pricing research on the analytics product, just given the world of subscriptions, we're not going to go after something that's 50 bucks a month. And we're just not going to win if we do that. And so that's where it started, you know, our own kind of go-to-market strategy. We came out with Retain. It's actually not been as long as we would like. I think it was only, really, it's only been maybe 12 to 14 months. And we didn't really start monetizing until probably about nine months ago. And so we literally just hired our first salesperson on that side of the team, like in November. So it it was a good number of years that we weren't really... And this is the problem with, you know, sometimes having a bootstrap company versus a VC backed company, because a lot of this wasn't necessarily because we didn't have the will to do it. It's just because we didn't have the resources uh, because it took us, we didn't have, you know, as many engineers and we've just started to have a marketing team. A lot of people think, you know, we've had a marketing team forever. We've had a blog and, and good content, but we've never we just formally started hiring marketing people, you know, a few months ago um, in Q4 of last year. And so it was one of those things where we we didn't have a lot of those things. And so we started to put all of these things together. And that's what's kind of, you know, started really moving the machine in, in the past year or so um, to be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, very cool. So I, I'm just, as we start to kind of, you know, wrap up the story, I do want to definitely get into the marketing side of it and content marketing. And yeah, although you haven't had a, you know, official teammates on there. You guys have certainly, uh, you've done a really great job getting your name out there and just, you know, the whole company out there for sure. So we'll get into that. Um, but I, just to wrap that up, like any strategies that you've used that you found to work pretty well to convert those free trial users into paying users on retain or recognized? Yeah. So I, I mean, I would be lying if I said, yep, this is the way to do it because I don't think we've really cracked this code. Um, we are able to basically you know, reach out to people and say, Hey, you know, you tripped one of our QA scripts around the amount of, you know, delinquent churn or churn in general you have, like, do you want to get on a call to talk to us? But we've, we've been very careful not to be super salesy. Uh, So every so often, all of a sudden you'll get, you know, a few emails from us if you're a free customer, but we've tried to really over index on making sure that we're not disturbing that free base, almost probably almost to a fault. And so Content's really been our driver. And what I like about the model, and it, it has a lot of problems, but we, we have this hub and spoke, right? We have this hub, which is this free product, and we have multiple spokes of these paid products. But we have a lot of people who come to us directly for retain and don't even, you know, they're using something else for metrics. And it helps kind of diffuse the conversation a little bit too, because they might be like, hey, we're, you know, we're using ChartMobile for our metrics. And we're like, that's totally fine. You know, if you want to take a look at our metrics, you know, this is why we think we're better. This is why we're worse in a couple of ways. But here's, you know, we can use Retain separately because they don't have, you know, that particular product. And, and so that's kind of helped to build that network a bit. And um, we're going to be coming out with more and more features to really, really support that free product because, as you can maybe see as a trend and kind of the whole storyline here, we're really looking, you know, mid to long term. We're doing some short term things to kind of keep the lights on and make sure that we're growing, but we're really looking for this, you know, long term strategy of being around in, you know, five, 10, 15 years and helping, you know, these businesses. Very cool. So, so yeah, I mean, how have you grown the kind of the top of the funnel for the past couple of years? And, and I'd like to know kind of what you're up to these days when it comes to content and, and just getting the, the word out. I mean, I've been hearing your stuff on podcasts. I've seen you speak at conferences. So you're out there. How have you kind of put those gears into motion? Yeah, I think so for the past few years, our, our main 
so we do have a sales team and, and that's that's a lot more geared towards the price intelligently side of the business. And then content has been just the thing that we've done. And so we look at it as we've stayed away and I don't think this has been conscious choice, but we stayed away from writing very top of the funnel. I call it top of the top of the funnel content. So, you know, up until recently, we weren't writing posts like, hey, here's an interview we did with, you know, Peter, CEO of teamwork.com or, or things like that. Uh, now we're starting to do more of that content, but we focused really, really exclusively on what we call bottom of the top of the funnel content, which is, hey, here's this pricing page teardown of, you know, this company. And it's very like, hey, if that's interesting to you, you're going to sign up for an ebook and then probably have a very likely chance of wanting to get on the phone to talk about your pricing. And similarly on the retain or the metric side, talking very specifically about certain pieces of those businesses and things like that. And so that's what kind of led us to really kind of grow the business in a high leverage way because some of those posts that are, you know, that some of our competitors write. So so Josh writes some beautiful, transparent posts that we we love to read and we share around. And, you know, we actually empathize a lot because, you know, although he is funded or BR Metrics is funded, it's one of those things where, you know, we're going through similar things. And and when something's going bad on his side, where we even say like, yeah, we're competitors, but man, we totally, you know, we know we've been there. So it's one of those things where that content does really, really well typically, but it's not necessarily the content that brings in the good leads. And so what we started to do is now going forward, now that we have resources and more leverage in terms of our own growth, we're still going to write the bottom of the top of the funnel content, but we're really going after more top of the funnel content. And the big thing that we're doing this year is really going deep into video. So we have two videographers on the team, which if you're a team of 40 and have one videographer, it's mostly surprising. We have two. And, um, we're basically changing and um, probably don't have time to go deep into it, but we're changing completely how we produce our content on our blog. And even to the point where it's not going to be a blog anymore, it's going to be you know, more of a more of a media site, if you will, as we kind of continue to produce some of this content. And we actually just launched the first episode of, of one of the shows that we're launching, which is kind of like a SaaS and subscription benchmarking show today. And so that's the first peek into what's going to be a lot of changes over the next couple of months. You know, I've been checking that out a bit and it is really impressive what you've been doing with video. I mean, if you can give us kind of like the broad strokes of like what's going into that. I mean, just from the like the production of it, like it, it looks like mainly it's you on video as like the expert, the personality on like just kind of teaching and sharing knowledge on these video. But you could tell that you have a team working on the production and posting it. Like what goes into all that? Yeah, totally. So hopefully by the end of the year, I am barely on camera. Um, that's kind of the goal. Um, I don't know if my ego is going to let that happen. No, I'm just kidding. But um, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, so it's very much like producing like a new drug or a new pharmaceutical. The first episode is always the most expensive. And then basically the rest is, is relatively cheap. And the reason that we're following kind of like a show or a series format is it turns out to shoot a season of a show, you know, maybe 10, 15 episodes it's basically the same cost as producing a really good ebook. And so it's one of those things where, you know, there's a lot better, you know, if you can produce a good series, whether it's a podcast or it's a data show or whatever it is, it's actually really, really good for your base and for your audience. And so what we've been doing is we've been basically taking a lot of, um, a lot of insight from Gimlet Media, Vice, and a lot of these other companies that are out there that are actual media companies and trying to basically get to this next evolution of inbound or content marketing. And so it's definitely a craft and it very well may fail completely miserably because it's you know, something that's it's new, but basically we have our team kind of thinking more like a media company on the marketing side. And that's why we have storyboards for shows. We have formats. Then when we nail a format, we shoot a bunch of them in sequence and kind of keep it going. And we'll see if our audience kind of latches onto that or if they're kind of like not impressed. So like, what does this mean? Like actual like structurally, like, is this, are, are they like documentary style shows kind of like telling the story of business owners and their, and that sort of stuff. And then like, I'm also wondering about like, how are you distributing like as a quote unquote media company now, like with different shows, you know, on your channel, like how are you kind of distributing those out? Like, is it just kind of through a, a special website or somewhere else? How's that working? Yeah. So uh, some of that I won't get into because for two reasons, one, it's not figured out or two, we're 
we feel like we have a little bit of an advantage before we let it loose, if you will, but I can answer most of that. I think that um, right now, the distribution side, we don't really know, to be very frank. We are trying very traditional channels. We're experimenting. You know, We're on a whole growth framework where we run multiple experiments per week, and we're basically just treating the show as its own product in terms of audience and things like that. And so that's kind of the you know, the, that side of it, but from kind of like a, a production standpoint, it's, you know, basically just trying changing the framework as to what we're actually going to build and what we're going to shoot. And so there's going to be multiple different formats that you'll see. So the one today, it's, it's very like call and response. So we had David cancel of drift. He sent me uh, and I, I used to get these, and I still get these questions all the time for people of like, Hey, do you have any benchmarks or, you know, what's going on with this part of the market? And so he sent me a you know video, which was like, hey, what's going on with retention and churn? And then we spent three minutes basically walking through what's going on in that part of the market. Um, the other formats we have, um, we have something called recurring that we haven't really posted a trailer for, but that's more docu-series style. So basically different cities, different people, it's going to be more like Viceland if you've seen Viceland, but, um, and it's hopefully at that level, but probably won't be right out of the gate. And then we have, you know, we're going to probably have kind of a traditional podcast, right? Where someone, you know, it's kind of interview style, but we're trying to, to test a lot of different things. And I would say that's the biggest thing for any content is you got to test a ton because, you know, we might find out that this doesn't work. And in six months, we're you know doing something completely different. Um, it's just part of the process, essentially. Yeah. And like treating it like a media company or like a Netflix, if you will, it's like, you know, for every 10 shows, there's one hit kind of thing. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's one of those things. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the deal. It's cool. I like it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's, we, we wanted to, the, the problem with being a bootstrap company is that, you know, there's a lot of advantages to this, but you don't take, as big of risks as you probably should. And so we were sitting around and we're like, we're finally in a point where we feel like we could take big risks and fail without tanking the entire company. And so we started looking at what's happening in the market and what's working, what's not. And um, we have a ton of data on this, just kind of going back to my roots on just like analyzing markets. And so that allowed me to basically see some stuff that's happening and we're taking a big bet and we, we will see. And maybe we'll be talking on an interview about what we learned from our complete failure, or we'll be you know, talking about how, uh, how it's scaled so beautifully or something like that next time. Well, very cool. I'm excited to kind of tune into this stuff, but you know, I, I definitely can't let you go without asking you a few pricing questions and really uh, you know, pick your brain about that stuff. You are the knowledge expert when it comes to all things pricing. Um, I know that the big struggle here when actually just when I was coming up with questions to ask you about this is that it, it is so the questions to ask and the answers are so different for every individual business and which stage they're at. So I guess that's actually the first question is like, how can someone kind of figure out what pricing problem that they should be focused on solving at any particular stage? You know, if they're just starting out or if they're kind of going from one to five people and they've got like a hundred customers or up to scaling, like how do you first just assess where is the problem that I need to focus on? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, so the first thing is to realize that there is no perfect pricing, um, unless you're in a commodity business, then there's perfect pricing, but none of us are in a commodity business. Some of our businesses are commoditized, but we're not like selling gold or you know things like that. And so once you wrap your head around that, and I say it kind of flippantly, but it's actually something that's hard for people to latch onto. But once you realize that, you start to see that, oh, like, okay, it's okay if this isn't good, as long as this is really good and it's it's netting out with more money or more acquisition or whatever you're trying to optimize. But in terms of the deeper root of your question, I think that for the most part, you have to look at where the choke is within your business. And what I mean by that is for us, our top of the funnel is not huge, right? Our pricing is really, really good, obviously, because we do this for a living. And we know that if we want to kind of loosen the screws, we actually might use pricing as a lever by lowering our price. For other folks, you know, in, in the early stages, it might be, hey, we just need to get those first customers. We don't want price to be an issue, but we also don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot. And so that might mean you focus on your value metric or your licensing model. So if I had to give you kind of a heuristic as to what most people focus on, in the early stages, you really should understand exactly what I just said, which is how are you actually going to charge? And you should be using what's called a value metric. So a value metric is per user, per hundred visits, per thousand dollars, per whatever. Um, that's the most important thing to figure out 
because that's the thing that's going to help you naturally scale expansion revenue within your business. And it's not important to necessarily figure out how much you're actually charging for that value metric in the early days, but you want to set up that basic packaging. As you get closer into kind of a more of a growth stage or the end of the early stage, that's when you want to try to figure out the actual number that you're charging because that's going to help you essentially make sure that you're getting past and more into that growth stage more often than not. And then as you get into that actual growth stage and kind of beyond, that's where things like packaging and positioning become even more important. And at every stage, all of these things are important. They're just not all important at the same level, I would argue. Right. You have to prioritize. Yeah. And if I told you at the beginning of your business to you know, do everything, it's like, well, we don't have to do everything, right? Because you're just trying to prove certain things at different stages of your business. So that's kind of how I would break that down. And certainly different businesses will have very specific problems, but that's more often than not kind of how things break down. Yeah. I just really like the one about, you know, thinking about it, like identifying that choke point in your business. I mean, it's really about just figuring out like, all right, well, what do we need to keep the oxygen going, especially in the early days and just keep it you know, running as a viable business. And then of course, optimizing as time goes on. Um, any thoughts on coming up with pricing or, or optimizing your pricing for a service, a productized service, if you will, versus a, a SaaS? So assuming that both the service and the SaaS are you know, a recurring retainer model and it's a very focused service but working in like a done-for-you capacity with clients like you've done with Price Intelligently, although there's certainly software involved there, versus a pure SaaS product. Like any difference in approach when it comes to figuring out pricing, packaging, you know, optimizations? Yeah, I would say one really big thing is to make sure that you're not... I, I So many of the more productized services that I meet, they're focusing way too much on like costs essentially. So I don't know whoever told us that a services business can't have the same margins as a SaaS business, but they were completely wrong. And the basically the way that you close that gap is you make sure that you're essentially taking on more money, obviously, and lowering your costs. But it's harder to lower your costs, especially when you're growing. And so what we typically find is that you want to focus in on essentially making sure that your costs from a value perspective are far outweighing or excuse me, your price is far outweighing those costs. And so I would actually start targeting like, how do I get into a world where my margins are 85, 90%. And if you do that, what you'll find is that you're actually aligning your value to what the customer actually wants. So I was just talking to someone who is starting essentially a almost like a podcasting service, but more from the creative standpoint. So he's essentially going to host you know, podcasts or he's at least going to concept them and then someone else can host them. And we we're talking about his pricing. And it was one of those things where the idea was, well, well, I can bring my costs down to here and have like, and survive. And I think that's just the wrong way to think about it when you're in this productized service world. In reality, you should be like, all right, well, how do I get to this margin? Because then I can either just make a really good living or I can reinvest that into building the business. And who's that customer that we're going to go after? So we had no qualms when we were starting this out about, hey, we're going to do this for startups. Startups don't have any money. And if you're not selling an actual product that's going to give them value for a low amount of cost, they're not going to use it. Even though you can say, hey, I'm going to bring you a million dollars. Will you give me a hundred grand? They're still hesitant to spend that much money, you know, because there's risk. And so we went after mid-market and enterprise. And we occasionally had a startup here and there, but most of the time we picked the right customer. And that's where I see a lot of productized services or, you know, more subscription consulting businesses miss out pretty considerably. Yeah. It's like that aspirational pricing concept. Totally. Absolutely. And you know, it actually goes back to, you know, what you're saying at the beginning here, where it was like, you know, founders are so turned off by the idea of getting into consulting or productized services or services in general, like they have to do SaaS. But when you have a service component involved, then then you kind of have that freedom to be able to tackle much larger, thornier problems that you can charge a lot more for. I mean, I love the idea of a guy, you know, done for you hosting of a podcast, something I've been thinking about for a long time. And that's a really tough thing to actually do for another client, let alone do for 50 other clients at the same time. But there are certainly systems and processes, ways to streamline that and clients who are willing to pay for much higher product for that. So yeah, totally. Picking the right customers, half the battle, seriously. Absolutely. So uh, obviously you've been leveraging the freemium model pretty heavily with ProfitWell. Um, any thoughts on that? Like I've heard some folks who are, you know, oh, you always have to do <laughs> freemium if you're doing a SaaS or you should never try freemium in certain cases, it, you know, which... I tend to, I just don't agree with any of those kind of statements, but 
How do you think about that? Like when does a freemium model make sense and how do you kind of come down to that decision? Yeah, totally. I, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind, and a lot of people don't remember this, is that freemium is an acquisition model. It is not a revenue model. A lot of people, they're like, oh, what's my pricing model? Well, it's going to be free. And it's like, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, that's the wrong answer to that question, right? And so I think what we typically find from a free side is that there's two sides of free. There's a faux free trial. And that's basically like a yesware, you know, where I'm going to give you, or at least yesware in the early days, I'm going to give you a hundred email opens per month. And as soon as you hit the hundred email opens, you need to buy the paid product. And you set that hundred or whatever that number is essentially at the level to where your target buyer is 21 or 14 days into the sales cycle. Because that that's helping a buyer self-identify. And then you don't lose them in a free trial because if they're free and they're not using that much of that value metric, they'll just keep using the free plan and you'll keep that lead warm. The other type of free is forever free, which is essentially what we've done with ProfitWell, where technically you never have to pay us and you can continue using the product until you know the end of time. And it's like a full featured product. Like you're not really limiting on features. Oh, yeah. Our NPS is north of 70 on the free product. And that's we found we've never found a free product that has that high of NPS. And so, and we're not, we have a high end. We have, you know, thousands of companies using ProfitWell. And so what we found is that what we want to focus on is basically making sure the free product, if you're going to do a forever free, is so good. Like it has to be good. Like what we look at is we're going to add more features that, you know, every time we add a major feature and there's a bunch coming out this quarter, it's like people think we're insane for giving away for free. And so that's where you want to be because you're building that brand leverage so that when you go to them and say, hey, you have this problem, we have a paid product, you at least get the conversation very easily because you've created so much goodwill. Um, in my opinion, everyone should do free, but everyone shouldn't do free at like the beginning. I think the best free plans that we've seen, the only time I would do free right out of the gate is if you have someone on your team who is a true growth hacker. Like if you have Brian Balfour on your team or Sean Ellis on your team, then you can do free out of the gate. Or if you have some sort of um, leverage on the market where you can acquire users in mass. But if you're a company that doesn't really know your customer, doesn't know a bunch of stuff, your free is just going to essentially be a big distraction. And so what we focused on is making sure that you know we know what's going on before we launch free. So Wistia, I think, has one of the best free plans out there. They didn't launch it until it was a top of the funnel problem where they needed more top of the funnel. And, you know, their free is a continual flood of, you know, of leads for them that they can qualify and get on the paid plans, essentially. Yeah. And I guess it also comes back to targeting the right customer and building the right free product for a particular market or, you know, just customer group that also aligns or there's some overlap into whatever your paid product is going to be. Yeah, totally. I think that, you know, the future though, is we might have free products that have very little to do. Like they might be targeting the same buyer, but they might not actually have a functional like connection with something else because it's getting so much, so much denser out there in terms of marketing and acquisition. The only answer to that problem is going to be some sort of free product where you can keep that lead warm and you can build that relationship and then eventually go and grab that user. Yep. It is interesting how it's just evolving. It's like so fast in the past year or two, you know, so many more competitors in every single space. Well, software is, uh, it's, it's never going to be easy, but it's becoming easier and easier to build. And I think that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we, we like to think it's harder because we like to think that we're, you know, better and bigger than we actually are. But I think it's one of those things where technology has made it, you know, if we wanted to all start companies by, the end of this podcast, obviously we're reaching the end, but if we all wanted to start companies within the time span that we recorded this podcast, we would be able to get a landing page up, billing system up, and you know, be able to have our servers up and running with, with something. And we haven't lived in a world where that was possible until now. Yeah, incredible. So, you know, last question. I get this question a lot from folks who are kind of just starting up whatever their business is going to be, usually a service business, sometimes a, a SaaS. But what, what is your kind of advice to someone who's trying to figure out that initial price point, like their version one, something to go to their first customers with? Um, I mean, obviously, you're doing some customer development around targeting the right problem to solve and all that. But like, how do you figure out the first price point without just kind of guessing and going with your gut, which has been 
my tried and true method basically. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I, it, it's actually relatively straightforward, but a lot of people are uncomfortable doing the work to do it. What you need to do is, and in, in, I can share something if, if you want to put it in the show notes, but basically the, the only people who are going to tell you how much their willingness to pay is, is your actual customer or your target customer. And so you need to just ask them the right questions. So to give you something tactical, um, I would never ask someone, hey, how much are you willing to pay for this? Because it just it's not a question. Like We don't think about value as human beings as a point. We think about it as a spectrum. So I know the microphone that I'm talking into right now is worth less than the computer that it's connected to. I just know that because I've purchased these things in the past. And if you showed me a new one and you told me that it was better, I might think that it's more expensive than the one that I already bought, but I wouldn't think it's more than the computer quite yet. Uh, and so we can take advantage of that by asking in ranges. So at what point would this be way too expensive that you would never consider purchasing it? And at what point is this a really good deal that you'll sign the contract today? If you're on the phone talking to someone, those are two really, really good questions. And you can even use those in the sales process instead of the classic budget dance, which is, well, what's your budget? Well, how much does it cost? Well, what's your budget? You know, going back and forth. Now, if you're doing this a little bit more scalably, there's four questions and they're all ranged questions. You simply add, you know, what point is it getting expensive? And then also at what point is it too cheap that you question the quality of it? And if you take that data and you translate it uh, using some open source models, and these are open source models that we've broken and rebuilt in order to make them more accurate, but you can use the ones that are open source and out there and they're, they're still pretty accurate. At least they're going to give you a ballpark. You can get an elasticity curve, which will actually tell you hey, you know, you're a $100 product or you're a $150 product or you're a $1,000 product or whatever. But the important thing is, is that even if you don't get 100 responses or 300 responses, that you're starting to put in the work to actually collect this data because the worst thing you can do is guess and check and basically waste just a ton of time doing that. Yeah, love it. Well, uh, well, Patrick, this has been hugely valuable for me and I know it will be for the listeners as well. Thanks so much for taking the time and, and really leading this space. I mean, I don't, I don't know of anyone who's focused so squarely on pricing since day one of the company. And, and it's just been really enlightening these last few years to watch you build this thing. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. It's a nice big puzzle. So that's what, uh, <laughs> that's what, that's what keeps us going. Yeah, awesome. And so, you know, we'll certainly put all this stuff in the show notes, but uh, priceintelligently.com, profitwell.com, anywhere else uh, where people can connect with you? Uh, no, those are the two places. If you want to get a hold of me, it's pc at profitwell.com. You know, happy to always answer questions or, or point you in a direction if it's helpful. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Patrick. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, before you go, did you know that in my newsletter list, there's a select group of folks who receive what I call my Friday notes emails. That's where I share some behind the scenes updates about the businesses that I'm working on in real time, some personal updates and some tips. They're kind of a change of pace from the other stuff that I usually send out. And so my longtime subscribers really enjoy these emails and I get a lot of feedback on them. But if you're not getting them yet, you can actually get my next one by going to castjam.com slash Friday notes. That's Friday dash notes. I'll connect with you soon. Thanks for tuning in today.